I love doing this, man. I just love hanging out in the living room and talking about God and exploring His Word and discovering what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ and to be pleasing to our God. What a, what a, what a joy. Let me open up with this. In 1961, the Canadian government was accused of concealing a uranium contract. The Canadian Prime Minister, John Diffenbacher, confidently declared that no such contract existed. The El Dorado Mining Company, uh, however, insisted that they had a firm contract with the Canadian government because they had, a, they had an exchanged letter of intent and that that, in their eyes, was a firm contract. This ultimately led to a vicious and ugly battle of words and their meanings. At stake was roughly $200 million worth of uranium that Canada had hoped and planned to sell to Britain from 1963 to 1966. But then, of course, also at stake was coming to some agreement on the differences between a letter of intent, a commitment, a contract, and a formal contract. Kind of ridiculous, right? A letter of intent, a commitment, a contract, or a formal contract. Just imagine. Imagine if, if we had to fight these sorts of battles all the time. I imagine that many of us currently do fight those types of battles, or at least we've done so in the past. What I cannot imagine is having that sort of struggle with God, wondering if what He says is really what He means. For sure, church, it is important to know the Word of God, right? For sure, it's important to know the Word of God. But it's also very important to know that we can trust the Word of God. There are plenty, believe me when I tell you this, there are plenty of people who know the Word of God, but simply do not trust the Word of God. Consider this progression, if you will, a four-step progression. Step one, we take very seriously, we take it very seriously to, to read and study and know the Word of God. Step one, good for you. Step two, we put our faith, hope, and trust in the Word of God. Good for you. Step three, when we put our faith, our hope, and trust in the Word of the Lord, we are ultimately putting our faith, hope, and trust in the person who wrote those very words to us. And then, of course, step number four is that when we put our faith, hope, and trust in the Lord who spoke these words, it changes how we engage the Lord, how we engage His Word, and how we indeed gauge life and one another. How can it not? Amen? So we're going to look back. We're in Ezra 3. We broke last week out of Ezra to do an Easter service, but we're in Ezra 3. A couple weeks back, Dave did a masterful job of going through Ezra 2. So I want to look back. The last book before Ezra is Second Chronicles, and the last chapter is chapter 36. Go to Second Chronicles. If you were already in Ezra, you just have to go a little bit to your left to Second Chronicles, chapter 36. And I want to pick up there to kind of remind ourselves as how Chronicles ended and what's happening in the book of Ezra. Okay, so Second Chronicles, chapter 36, the last chapter. And we're going to start at verse 15, and we're going to read to verse 2 of chapter 1 of Ezra. You guys ready? Verse 15 of Second Chronicles 36. The Lord, the God of their fathers, He sent word to His people again and again by His messengers. Why? 
Look at why. Why did the Lord do that? Because He had compassion on His people. God's Word is an expression of His love and compassion towards us and on His dwelling place. But they, they, His followers, continually mocked the messengers of God. Imagine. They despised His words and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people and there was no other remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand and all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers. He brought all of that to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. And those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and to his sons until the Persian Empire. And this was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. God will always fulfill his word until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. And now, 70 years later, in the first year of Cyrus, who is the king of the Persian Empire, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. And he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom, and he put it in writing, and this is what it said, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, And he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And so that brings us into Ezra. And it starts the same way Chronicles ended. Now in the first year of Cyrus, verse 1, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation and also put it in writing throughout all of his kingdom. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We thank you that your word is an act of love and an act of compassion towards us who so desperately need to live by the truth because we're so easily swayed by things that are not true. So, Lord, we pray that your truth would have its way with us this morning. And it's in your name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. It is really, really good to be with you guys. Again, thank you for for being here. All right, let me get myself calibrated. Okay, so here's our outline for our text. There's 13 verses. I hope you guys are reading ahead. I hope you read Ezra 3. I know many of you did. I talked to this morning. So the first seven verses is about recalibrating the heart. You guys ever have moments where you just need to recalibrate your heart, where things just kind of seem to go uh, a little haywire, and it's like, I I need to recalibrate my heart. And then the next two verses, verses 8 and 9, is about reconstructing the house of the Lord. And then the last four verses is rejoicing in such a way as to be heard by the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, our first stanza, recalibrating the heart. Okay, we just read in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 16. It showed us this, that if you remember that verse, 36, 16, that they continually, continually, not once, but time after time after time, 2 Chronicles 36, 16 says that they continually mocked the messengers of God. Imagine being in that place. To continually mock the messengers of God, they continually despised 
the word of God and they continually scoffed at his prophets. That's what 36.16 shows us. The Lord's people clearly needed to recalibrate their hearts if that's the kind of actions that they're doing, right? So let's read Ezra 3, 1 through 7. Let's read Ezra 3, verses 1 through 7. So they have the decree from Cyrus, and then in chapter 2 it lists all the people that went back to Jerusalem, and now they're going to get to work. Okay, so verse 1. When the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in the cities, and the people gathered together as one man in Jerusalem. And then Jeshua, the son of Josedak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of God uh, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And so they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord morning and evening. And they celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and they offered the fixed number of burnt offerings every day, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering, and also for the new moons and the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a freewill offering to the Lord. Verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to God, but the foundation had still not been laid. And so they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and they gave food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa so they can haul it over to Jerusalem, just as Cyrus, king of Persia, had told them to do so. Hmm. Wow. What, those are some great verses, right? They were, in, they were in captivity for so long, for 70 years, and now they're back and they're rebuilding their temple. And these verses paint quite the scenario, I think. The people, it says, gathered together as one man. That's what verse 1 says. It says that they set up an altar to the Lord. It says that they offered burnt offerings morning and evening. It says they celebrated the Feast of Booths, the new moons, the fixed festivals, and even gave free will offerings above and beyond what was required by God. They gave money to, to the masons and to carpenters, as well as food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians for the cedar wood. So let me ask you a couple questions. Are those seven verses an encouraging or a discouraging scenario? Are those first seven verses encouraging or discouraging? Take a risk. Encouraging. Of course. When we talk about the need to recalibrate our hearts, however, what are we recalibrating it to? When we talk about recalibrating our hearts, what are we recalibrating it to? We're going to get into this. This scenario is indeed an encouraging scenario for one very simple reason. And we find that one very simple reason in three verses. Verses 2, verses 4, and verse 7. If I 7. I was going to do that, but I did that, so i got to take one back. Verse 2, 4, and 7. Check out verse 2. This is the reason, or this is what they're recalibrating their hearts to and why this is an encouraging scenario. Look at verse 2. Then Jeshua the son of Josedek and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, they arose and they built the altar of God to offer burnt offerings on it, comma, how? As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Because they did it according to God's word. Because when we recalibrate our hearts, that's what we have to recalibrate it to. We have to recalibrate our hearts to the Word of God. What does verse 4 say? 
they celebrated the Feast of Booths. How? As it is written. And they offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily. How? According to the ordinance, as each day required. And then look at verse 7. At the end, he says, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia, Persia, which is how the prophet Jeremiah spoke. It's how Chronicles records, and it's how uh, the book of Ezra opens, that Cyrus would do these things because God put it on his heart to do those things. So when we recalibrate our heart, we have to recalibrate it towards something, and the only thing is to recalibrate it to the Word of God. Do I get an amen for that? Amen, right? Now, let's revisit... 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 and 16, and see how this might jump a little differently off the page, if you will. Go back to 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 and 16. Man, this just moves me. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again. It's just what He does. If you're here, it's because God's sending His Word to you again and again. And next week, guess what? We're going to do it again. And the next week and again. And the next week and again. He sent His Word to them again and again by His messengers because He loves us. He had compassion on His people and upon His dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. And they despised His words and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose. Because there's no other remedy is how it, that verse finishes. There's no other remedy outside the Word of God. None. God's Word is the only remedy for mankind. The only remedy. Turn to 2 Timothy. It's in the New Testament. After First and Second Thessalonians, you should be able to find you know, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, I think, and then First and Second Thessalonians, and then First and Second Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy 3, verses 13 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, starting at verse 13. This is so cool. (laughs) Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Timothy, man, check this out, dude. And that's you and I now, right? But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving... And being deceived. When we're not in the truth of God's Word, we deceive and we don't have the ability to not be deceived. Because how do we know? If we don't know what's true, then we deceive others and it allows us to be deceived by others. You, however, continue in the things you've learned and you become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, from the Lord God Almighty, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ. All Scripture, all of it, is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The way I heard that years ago, it means it's tells you what's right, what's not right, how to get it right, how to keep it right. That's what verse 16 means. What's right, what's not right, how to get it right, how to keep it right. So that the man and the woman of God may be adequate. That means mature. It means perfect. It means complete. So that the man of God may be perfect and complete, equipped for every good work. 
that's how powerful the Word of God is. It's what matures us. It's what completes us. It's what equips us so that we can get to work for Him. Check it out. A recalibrated heart, a recalibrated heart causes us, we'll see here in Ezra 3, causes us to act with boldness. A recalibrated heart causes us to act with boldness. Let me tell you some of the things that happened in these seven verses. It says that the people gathered as one man, boldly. They arose, verse 2 says, they arose and built an altar and offered burnt offerings boldly. They celebrated in verse 4, boldly. In verse 7, they gave money, food, drink, and oil. They acted with boldness because look what happens in verse 3. Check it out in verse 3. They set up the altar on its foundation in spite of being terrified is how that really should read better for us, if you will. They set up the altar on its foundation in spite of being terrified because of the people around them. They recalibrated their hearts to the Word of God which allowed them to act boldly even though they were terrified in the midst of the very city that God had called them to work because it had been reoccupied by people that were opposed to God. I love that. These people wanted to be sure that they were very pleasing to the Lord in spite of opposition and fear. This may not surprise you. There are times where I have fear, if you will. I'm afraid to do my job. or, or I'm, I'm afraid of, that I have what it takes to, to lead and to, and to present God's Word faithfully and accurately and rightly. But God doesn't want me to operate in that fear. He wants me to act in spite of that fear, even if the fear is in their midst. And I'm sure we have that as well at times, right? Fear is okay. We can be obedient. We can be pleasing to the Lord in spite of opposition and fear. And so I wonder who or what we fear that keeps us from pleasing the Lord. I wonder who or what we fear that keeps us from being pleasing to God. Because if we're not pleasing the Lord... Who are we pleasing? If we're not pleasing the Lord, who are we pleasing? Ourselves? Others? Our boss? Our neighbors? Our parents? 2 Corinthians 5.9 I love this verse. Where Paul writes, he says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether I'm alive or dead, to be pleasing to God. Yes, It's okay to be ambitious. Be ambitious. Be ambitious in pleasing God. Please, be ambitious in pleasing our Lord. So, a recalibrated heart not only causes us to act with boldness, it causes us to act in unity. When we have recalibrated our heart, it causes us to act with boldness and to act in unity or with unity. Look at what verse 1 says. It says, When the seventh month came... The sons of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered how? They gathered together as one man. That must be pleasing to God. That must be pleasing to our Lord. God's Word, church, if you don't know this, God's Word has much, much, much to say about the body of Christ. God's Word has much to say about what it means to be a family to be the body of Christ and to be in unity. And too often we make too much of our individual walk with the Lord. I'm working on my individual walk with God. Well, hurry the heck up. Because we're not meant to walk alone with God. We're meant to walk together 
as a family, as the body of Christ. It's all through Scripture. I often ask this question when it comes to this topic about the body of Christ and the topic of unity. I wonder, I like to ask people, I wonder how many in God's church, not just here, but in the church globally, that they have a unity passage as one of their favorite verses or one of their memory verses. Not too many people do. We lose sight of the fact that we're to be a unified people. And a recalibrated heart towards God's Word is the only thing that allows that to happen. It's the only thing. Because if we're not in unity, somebody's heart's not calibrated to the truth of God's Word. That's the only reality, right? Here's some verses to consider. Psalm 133. If you have time, read the whole psalm. It's three verses long. I'll give you the first verse. Behold how good and how pleasant it pleases God. It is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Philippians 2, verse 2 says this. Paul writes, Make my joy perfect or my joy complete by being of the same mind maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. A recalibrated heart brings boldness and it brings unity to the body of Christ. Amen? The unity of Ezra 3 exists because the people were operating according to what was written. Here's a couple other verses on both sides of the equation. The book of Judges. (laughs) There's a lot of bad stuff going on in the book of Judges. They don't want God as a king. Now they don't want man as a king. And so here's what happened. In those days, there was no king. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And then the book of Judges ends in chapter 25 or 21, verse 25. It ends this way. That in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Can you imagine? Take one city, any city. Let's take Anaheim Hills. That's where we're at, right? Anaheim Hills says, we got a new ordinance. Here's our new slogan for the city of Anaheim Hills. Everyone can do what's right in their own eyes. Imagine. Imagine. I'm out of here. No thank you. And yet on some level, you see that starting to happen. Everybody wants to do what's right in their own eyes. On the opposite end, you get verses like 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp to raise up a son after him and establish Jerusalem because David did what was right in the sight of God, in in, in God's eyes. And he did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. Or verses like 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, where the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall, shall sit on the throne. Good stuff, right? We have to recalibrate our hearts always to God's Word. Always. Always. Our second stanza, Reconstructing the House, verses 8 and 9. Let's read Ezra 3, verses 8 and 9. Now the second year of their coming to the house of the God of Jerusalem, or at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josedek and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work and they appointed Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Henadad with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple. If you glance at those two verses, 8 and 9, here's some of the characters you're going to see. You're going to see Zerubbabel. The son of Shealtiel is what these verses tell us. You're going to see Jeshua, the son of Josedek. 
You're going to see Cadmiel and his sons. You're going to see the sons of Judah. You're going to see the sons of Hinnadad. You're going to see the priests and the Levites. But here's what you might miss. And it's in verse 8. Let's read verse 8. In the second year of their coming, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and the rest of their brothers, and the priests and the Levites. And here's what we might miss. And all who came from captivity. So you can read all those characters and all those people, but you might miss that line. Everybody who came back to Jerusalem began to get to work. Everybody. All who came back began the work of the Lord. And so here again, this verse speaks to the concept of unity for sure, but responsibility as well. We can't just be unified. We also have to understand our role and responsibility in the body of Christ. We all have a responsibility. All of us do. We can't just be united and sing Kumbaya. God's like, all right, when's this song over? It's time to get to work. I don't even know where Kumbaya comes from, actually. Is that a real song? It's in the Bible? Must be, right? Turn, if you will, to... Ephesians chapter 4. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. This is really cool how Paul puts together the concept of unity and responsibility. Unity and responsibility. Galatians, Ephesians, right? Galatians is after 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians, and then Ephesians chapter 4. This whole idea of both unity and responsibility. We all have it. Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore I, and Paul's in prison, the prisoner of the Lord, as he writes this letter, I implore you, I beg you, I beseech you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, with which you have been called. Andrea, that's what he's saying to you, Andrea. Walk in a worthy manner of how I have called you. With all humility. And this is the unity part, right? That we're to be uh, humble with one another. We treat each other with humility. With all humility and gentleness, with Patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because there's one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who was over all and through all and in all. But, <laughs> right, so that's the unity part. But to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of the gifts of Christ. And it says in the end of verse 8 that He gave gifts to men. Skip down to verse 11. And He gave some as apostles. And He gave some as prophets. And some as evangelists. And some as pastors and teachers. Why? Verse 12 tells us. For the equipping of the body of Christ. For the equipping of the saints. For the equipping of you. For what? For the work of service. To build up the building, the temple, the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. And what's a mature man? It's the measure of the stature which we can find in Jesus Christ. A recalibrated heart makes us bold. It creates unity, but it also leads us to responsibility. Always. Check out Psalm 11, verse 3, as we wind down this section. Psalm 11, verse 3. David asks, 
If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know what the answer is? There's one answer. Rebuild them. Sometimes the foundations of our life get destroyed, don't they? And we just rebuild them. That's what Ezra's doing. God's rebuilding. The foundations are destroyed. Lay the foundations again. That's what spiritual revival is all about. Getting back to the foundations of the Christian life and making sure that they're solid. Repentance. Confession. Prayer. The Word of God. Obedience. Faith. Fellowship. Serving. To advance God's work. So I ask, what part of our foundation, what part of your foundation needs to be rebuilt? What part of your foundation needs to be rebuilt? What part of your foundation perhaps needs to be built for the first time? Maybe Dave Recknitz are going to uh, Honduras or Lara going to Honduras. Maybe that's the first part of that part of their foundation, that they're laying that part of the foundation for the very first time. Good for you. Maybe that's part of rebuilding their foundation and they lost sight of something along the way. Who knows? So what needs to be rebuilt or what needs to be built for the first time in your foundation? And then on top of that, are you aware of the things that destroy our foundation? What are the things that creep into our life that want to destroy the very foundation that God wants to build upon? Our third stanza, our last stanza, is rejoicing in such a way to be heard. Do we rejoice in a way that's heard? Let's read Ezra 3, verses 3 through 10. I'm sorry, verses 10 through 13. Ezra 3, verses 10 through 13. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of God's Word, King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good. His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, they wept with a loud voice. They weren't happy about this temple. We'll get to that in a second. They wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while the rest, while many others, shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joy from the sound of weeping. And the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Wow, 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 wow. Great, a great four verses. And it makes me wonder, I wonder, I wonder how many of us have seen the Lord restore something like these four verses. I wonder how many of us have seen the Lord restore something that seemed to have no hope. That's what's happening in these verses. The Lord is restoring something and they're celebrating. How many of us have seen the Lord restore something important that seemed to have no hope of revival? Maybe it was a marriage. Maybe it was a a wayward child like I was. Maybe it's finances that got out of control or health challenges or a children raised in harsh circumstances or whatever it might be. Would we not respond just like they did in verse 11? when it says all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. You say, well, I don't have a story like that. I don't have a great shouting story. Oh, I think you do. And let me tell you where. We can find this in Ephesians 2. I'll tell you why and where. Ephesians 2 says this. Remember, church, 
Remember, whoever you are, remember, Bruce, that you were at that time separate from Jesus Christ. You were excluded from God's family, the commonwealth of Israel. And you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope without God in the world. But now, because of what Christ did for you, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We all have a restorative story to celebrate and shout for joy. All of us do. Verse 11 and 13 tell us that all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. The people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard far away. Verse 13 tells us. And for me, I just, I just, I, I'm picturing this, this level of intensity. Many of us have those things that we're intense about. Let me tell you what I'm intense about. I'm intense about my family. I'm intense about Alabama football. I'm intense about golf, watching it more than playing it. I'm not so good at playing, but I can watch it, a mean game of golf. I'm pretty intense about NASCAR. I'm really intense about Hershey with almonds and bagels, just so you know. But, where does our intensity for the Lord come in? Where does our intensity for the Lord fit into our lives? Do you worship the Lord with all your heart? And if you couldn't answer that when I just asked, if you couldn't answer that with a resounding yes, without pausing, then it causes me to ask why. We should be able to praise God with all of our heart. The people united their hearts and voices in praise to our God. What a blessing that must be to our Lord. What a blessing it must be to God that we can come here together and worship together as a family because our hearts are recalibrated and we're unified and we understand our responsibility and we're bold and we have a story that's worth telling that God saved a wretch like me. Let's close by looking at verse 12. Verse 12 says that these godly old men longed for the old days. It says that many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, they wept. They longed for the good old days, but it was the sins of their generation that had caused the fall of the kingdom to begin with. Had their generation listened to the prophet Jeremiah and obeyed God's word, Jerusalem and the temple would still be standing. But God doesn't just leave this cry in their hearts. He addresses it, as always, with His word. And that's what we're going to close with. He closes this discouragement in verse 12. The weeping, it's not the same. The old one was better. That was my Jewish accent. Did you guys pick, did you guys pick up on that? I didn't have a hat. I thought I'd go with the accent. Go to Haggai. Haggai. Third to the last book in the Old Testament. If you go to Matthew, then go back, right? You'll have Malachi, then Zechariah, and then Haggai. Look how good. And even in their despair, if you will, the Lord sends a good word because He loves us and He's compassionate. Go to Haggai, right? If you go to Matthew and work backwards, Malachi, right? Then Zechariah. And then Haggai, chapter 2. This is how good our God is to us. I'm going to read this and then I'm going to pray. And if you need prayer for any reason, we'll have a prayer team available over here to my left. We all in Haggai? Alright. Starting in verse 1. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet 
Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, or Jeshua, same thing, the high priest, and, of course, to the people. And say this, Who was left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now, take courage, the Lord says to Zerubbabel. Take courage also, Joshua. And all you people take courage, declares the Lord. And what? And work. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. The sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God is so good to us. And He always has a good word for us. Our hearts must always be recalibrated to the truth of God's Word. Amen? I'm going to pray. And then if you need prayer, over there. You guys have a great rest of the week. And let me pray. Lord, thank You for continually giving Your Word to us. Lord, we don't want to turn from it anymore. Lord, show us those areas where we might be doing just that. Help us to recalibrate our hearts back towards Your words towards your word, your scripture. It's how you show compassion. It's how you love us. And we thank you for that. Lord, we bless you for this day. It's the day that you have made. We rejoice and we are glad in it. Lord, thank you that your word brings a boldness. Thank you that it brings a unity. And we thank you, Lord, that it brings a responsibility. May we understand that and take that very serious, Lord. In your name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.